0: want to remember that our nation is um, is remembering Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, what he what he did for our country. Um, he's a hero of the civil rights movement. Now, talking about the civil rights movement, there there uh, there were many sayings that came out of the civil rights movement. One being, "You got to speak truth to power." Okay, speak truth to power, and uh, th- uh, that's a fascinating. Uh, concept also requires a lot of courage, and we're going to talk about um, not so much speaking truth to power, but speaking truth, but speaking the truth in love. And it's an essential practice, not only for working through societal problems, the strife that we see pretty much every day in the news, and maybe even experience every day in our lives, but we need to speak the truth in love if we're going to be living out grace in our community and achieving uh, maturity in our faith. Now, our passage today, we're going to focus on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, but I'm going to read a few other verses from uh, Paul's love letter to the Ephesians uh, for context. So I'm going to begin in verse 4 of chapter 4. You can follow on the screen if you like. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through, through all <clears throat> and in all. Skipping down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning... And as we have already prayed and asked you into our midst, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would continue to work in us and through us, softening our hearts, giving us ears to hear, eyes to see the message you have for us this morning. Not simply understanding the vocabulary, the grammatical way these paragraphs are put together, but the spiritual application to us, that we might grow, that we might mature, that we might attain into the stature, the fullness, full measure of Jesus Christ, that we might be more like Jesus after this service than when we came. Would you do that for our good, for the blessing of those around us, and for your glory? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the series in Ephesians, we've been talking about unity in Christ, how, how we're united to Christ, how we're, that we're in Christ, and, and that that uh, that connection to him, that spiritual connection, also means we're connected to each other, like it or not. We just read about that in verses 4 and 5. We are one in Christ because of the bonds of the Spirit, and, and that should change us. It should change us individually, but also corporately as a congregation. It should have transformative power, and the church itself should be a transforming body. I want to read to you a, a quote from someone who talked about that transforming power of the church. The beginning of the quote starts like this. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer but, uh, that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven. I love that. I love that description. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the sermon. They, were, they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and the gladiatorial contests. That was the power of the church. Now, now how did the church do that? How did the, the church transform the ancient Western world? Well, they did it through hope in the gospel, um, through being transformed themselves by that hope and having that transformation flow out to the society around them uh, with humble conviction, persistent action, and dare I say they did it by speaking the truth and love. To the people around them. Now, that quote that I read earlier—if you haven't guessed already, maybe maybe you looked at the card that I have in the in the uh, bulletin—but it comes from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. And I think it's especially appropriate to use this letter because I want to talk about two things, two related things this morning. First, the example of Martin Luther King. It seems appropriate on this weekend to do so. But the example of Martin Luther King to speak truth, but in love. Especially into the issue of race relations. And also, uh, I want to speak to the experience of unity that God wants us to have, even across racial lines. Um, and that only comes by speaking the truth and love. Now, it's interesting to talk about the unity of the church because it's something that's both now and not yet. Uh, do we have unity in Christ? Well, yes. We do. God's done it already. He's bound us together with the bonds of the Spirit. That's what verse, verses four and five say. It's kind of like family. Whether you like it or not, that person is your brother and your sister. You know, you you gotta make it work. Or 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 at least you should make it work. The truth is, God has bound us together. Do we always experience the blessing of that unity? you don't you don't sound convinced (laughs) do we always experience the blessing of that unity No. no we fail to live according to the truth we we fuss and we fight we compete with each other we degrade each other and so the calling here is to live according to the gospel reality that god has bound us together he's made us one in christ and so we should live according Uh, to this truth by speaking the truth in love. It's not unlike MLK's call for for living in justice, Uh, for us all to live according to the truth, that we're made in the image of God. Every last one of us, every last one of us in this room, anybody you've ever met, they are made in the image of God, no matter what their socioeconomic class is, no matter their gender, no matter even their sexual orientation, no matter their race, they're made in the image of God. And we should honor that. We do that by speaking the truth in love. Well, how do we faithfully speak the truth in love? What does that mean exactly? Well, I'm going to talk about three things this morning. First, to speak the truth in love means you need to speak truth to build. You need to speak truth to correct. And you need to speak truth to praise. Let's talk about the first of them. Speak truth to build. Maybe there's a saying saying that I knew of as a kid. Maybe you know it too. Uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't know what your experience was like as a kid, but I was bullied. I was bu- bullied very severely. And my experience was, was quite the opposite. Sticks and stones may b- break my bones, and words will always hurt me. Words of power. Power to hurt, but also power to heal. And the Lord wants to build up the church uh, to be like Christ. And the church is made up, again, of all who put their, their, their faith in, uh, in Christ, no matter their race or ethnicity or gender or class. And he gives us gifts to be built up. Look at these gifts. Verse 13, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, there's something about the calling of all these people, teachers, teachers, Prophets, evangelists, apostles. Don't know, maybe maybe it doesn't occur to you what that what that is in common, but they have something in common that they they all have to use. Do you know what it is? Huh?? Mouths, tongue, tongues, words. They're all people who have to use words. They're to wield those words to build a glorious cathedral, to house God's glory to t- that testifies to God's grace. And that building uh, is called the body of Christ. You know, we have a church building, but that's not, this is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about you. You are the body of Christ. You are the church and God wants us to build you up. And in this love letter, Uh, to the Ephesians, the apostle Paul writes these words from a Roman jail cell that they might rise in their stature. They might, you know, flesh out the glory that God has set in them. How are they to use their words? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is I don't know if you're connecting with it, but this is a glorious picture of what God intends for us, individually but also corporately, that we would grow in stature, power, wisdom, righteousness. We could spend a whole series of sermons talking about just this verse. But we're not gonna do that. We're gonna talk about the fact that Paul says we speak the truth in love that we might build each other up to this end. Words. Now, some words even though they might be true, can be destructive when they're not accompanied by love, when they're not motivated by love, when they're not birthed by love. Have any of you ever had something true to, said to you and you're like, you know, wow, I've never you know, heard the truth and felt so destroyed in my life. Words can hurt even if they are true. And we need to train each other in the power of words and in the use of words. To use words in love means we must be mindful of building building people up. I seek to train my children in being builders of people, being very mindful of how they use their words, particularly with each other. And using words responsibly begins with training my children, training the body of Christ to see people as people, as bearers of the image of God. You know, the driver in front of you when you're, when you're, when you're uh, in traffic, they're a person, not just an obstacle. That's my temptation. Um, the customer in line in front of you who suddenly, you know, has, can't seem to find their, their, their credit card or they have some complicated aspect to their purchase and they're holding up the whole line. They're not just a hindrance, they're a person. The homeless person holding up traffic because they're crossing the street slowly with their shopping cart. The refugee from South America. If we see these people at all, we tend to see them as problems. We can't speak the truth in love. We can't speak to build if we don't see people as people. You know, some of the most profound words in in all of the book of of Ephesians comes right at the beginning. We tend to skip right over it. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus... Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Again, many of us sort of skim over those words, kind of, well, it's a perfunctory greeting. And there's nothing really important there. Theologians might say, oh, no, no, there's a lot important there in these, in these words of grace and peace. There's all this theological content, in, in that, and that would be true. But it, it misses the most important practical impact on the first hearers. These words, grace. In the New Testament, in New Testament Greek, charis, Uh it was a common Greek greeting. You know, in America, when we when we say greet somebody, we say "hello," "how you doing?" Uh, in, in ancient Greece, or at least the ancient uh, Greek speaking world, they would say, "Ah, oh, grace, grace to you." Then we have the word "peace" in the New Testament Greek, uh, uh, "arene," but really, it's a Greek translation uh, uh, of the word "shalom," which is the way Hebrews greeted each other in the first century. Shalom, peace to you. They didn't say, how you doing? They said, peace. And so we have this greeting, Karas and shalom, grace and peace, in two different languages, hellos from two different cultures. And, And what's important to remember is that the Ephesian church was a mix of Greek speakers from that culture and Jews, In essence, what he's saying, you Greeks, you Gentiles, I see you. I greet you. And you Jews, I see you too. I see you. If we had Haitians in our congregation, maybe it would be appropriate for us to regularly say, bonjour, ak hello, okay? Um, If we had someone who spoke Filipino or Tagalog, um, we would say, uh, kamusta, at hello? Spanish speakers, hola, Well, You know, we do have people from some of those cultures here in this congregation. Maybe we should be greeting you all that way, as a way of saying, I see you. I see you. I see you. And I see you. I do. And I see you. And I see you. And way in the back, I see you. There's power in using our words to recognize, to acknowledge people. And we all know what it's like to go unacknowledged. Uh, some more profound than others. Maybe at a staff meeting because we're too junior. Or maybe at a staff meeting because we're too senior. Or maybe we're the wrong color or the wrong gender or the wrong social class. It's demoralizing. It's, it's demoralizing. It's destructive. I want to tell you a story of how words spoken in love to someone who's feeling demoralized can bring healing. And there's a collection of essays. Uh, actually, it's there for purchase. Letters to a Birmingham jail. Uh, it's a response of many Christian leaders, modern Christian leaders, to uh, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And in one of those essays by uh, Brian Loritz, He wrote of his experience not only as a a college student, a a black man in a white evangelical school, but also as as a black pastor in a predominantly white church. This is what he had to say about his experience. As far as I can tell, I was never discriminated against in college. However, I did feel a non-existence like what Ralph Emerson described in his groundbreaking book, Invisible Man. It was the inhumanity of anonymity. I know the feeling of anonymity when, one has, when that one has when he takes a seat in the halls of white evangelicalism. It didn't take me long to figure out I was Ellison's invisible man. And despite the resentment that he built up during his college years, uh, he found himself called to a predominantly white church. And to his own surprise, he accepted that call. And early in his time there... Uh, there was a, a respected elderly gentleman at the church who wanted to take uh, Brian out for lunch, uh, breakfast. And they sat there and they chatted a little bit, little bit about the church. But then, then, then this elderly gentleman uh, looked at him and said, Brian, I want to tell you something. I love you. I love you. And this was Brian's response. There was a sweetness to his spirit and an authenticity to his demeanor that made me believe him. Those three words reached down into me and did something. For the first time in my life, I felt I had leapt from the pages of Ellison's novel and had a name among my white brothers and sisters. In Evan's own way, he said that I mattered. Immediately, I excused myself from the table, went to the restroom, and had a good cry. To speak truth in love is to build, to build up somebody, to build up the church. But to build, we must see and use our words with purpose, with intention. We need to speak the truth in love, and the truth is we need to do better. We need to see better. We need to listen better. And then we need to speak better and use our words to build, to acknowledge the humanity of the people around us, the dignity of everyone around us. And sometimes building begins with something as simple as looking someone in the eye and saying, hello. Now, of course, loving people with our words isn't just uh, about building. Sometimes we need to speak to correct, and that's, that's, that can be hard. Um, when our child races out into the street or reaches to grab a knife by the blade, what do we do? We use words. We say, stop! Sometimes it's a little, you know, surprising, alarming, startling. We don't like it. Get mad at people, but actually they're looking out for us. And we need people speaking into our lives, bringing correction. Paul recognizes the temptation that the Ephesians had uh, in terms of staying faithful to the gospel. He, here he's not so much yelling, startling them, but speaking gently and warning them of a danger that they have of mixing the gospel with uh, philosophies that seem more reasonable to the Greek world. Uh, in, even in our modern world, we're, we're tempted to mix uh, reasonableness, quote unquote, reasonable ideas with the gospel. The idea that, that God is, is love, that he loves us, hey, that's great. Even the idea that Christ sacrificed himself as an example of his love, man, that is awesome. That is sweet. I'm glad that you have that in your tradition. But the idea that Jesus was divine, the idea that, that Jesus is an exclusive way to be saved, well, that's not very reasonable. Uh, that's, that's even offensive. But Paul doesn't want them to be tossed about by human philosophy, so he uses words to warn them and bring in correction. Verse 14, he says that we, that we shouldn't be, uh, we're going to equip you so you may no, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. These are words of correction spoken in love. Watch out for this. Don't go down that path. And that's the power of MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail. It's the second love letter written from a jail cell that we're talking about this morning. And and there are words spoken in correction. Now, you may not realize this. If you're aware of, uh, of, of, of Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail at all, uh, you may not be aware that it was actually written in response to another letter, a letter that was published in a newspaper. There were eight white clergymen sympathetic to Martin Luther King's cause of racial equality, and they wrote a public letter trying to dissuade him from these public protests that were, that were, that were being res- you know, met with, with violence and, and disorder. Uh, and this is what they wrote in the paper. We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being rec- realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. Just as we formerly pointed out that hatred and violence have no sanction in our religious and political traditions, we also point out that such actions as incite to hatred and violence, however technically peaceful those actions may be, have not contributed to the resolution of our local problems. We do not believe these days of new hope are days when extreme measures are justified in Birmingham. Martin Luther King was there to have a peaceful march, and, and, and the authorities were trying to basically make it illegal for him to, to march peacefully. And he was going to do it anyway. That's why he was thrown in jail. And these clergymen are trying to reason with him. Look, there's got to be some better way we can move forward together that doesn't create uh, this, this, this overreaction and this violence. You know, Martin, you've got to be reasonable. And it does sound kind of reasonable, doesn't it? Until, until you hear the words that King writes in his letter, these words of correction spoken in love. This is what he wrote. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you speak to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and sees tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people, when you are forever fighting a denigrating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. You know, suddenly the reasonableness of compromise and matters of justice seem like we're aiding and, ab- and abetting and the dismantling of someone's dignity. Not just an individual, but a whole class of people sometimes. And the other thing that we see clearly from from king's letter is that he that, that he's not writing in anger he's not writing to shame people he's trying, he's trying to win brothers to the cause of justice he's writing in love and in hope. you see that clearly from the clo- the close of his letter. if I have said anything in this letter that is an understatement of the truth and is indicative of An unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything in this letter that is an overstatement of the truth and is indicative of my having a patience that makes me patient with anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. Now, speaking the truth in love sometimes means speaking a word of correction, correcting a a person, a brother, a sister, who's using their words to make somebody feel like a nobody because of their race, or their ethnicity, or their social class, or even their immigration status. We should correct a person on the other side who speaks self-righteously, judges somebody, and makes them feel like they're less than nobody because their political opinions aren't as enlightened as theirs. We degrade ourselves when we degrade anybody. And we need people to speak into our lives lovingly to bring correction. It's what Martin Luther King did in his love letter from that Birmingham jail cell. And finally, speaking the truth in love means to praise. And there's a lot to praise. There's a lot to be discouraged by, but there's also a lot to praise because the Lord has made people in his image. And there isn't anything more glorious than the image of God, except for God himself. He's created us in his image, and he's working something amazing in us, through us, even if it's messy at times. Paul talks about that glory in verses 15 and 16. I've read it twice before, but I'm going to read it again because it's a glorious vision of what God wants. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church is to be so glorious that he compares it to something as amazing as the human body. I don't know if you've spent time thinking about how amazing the human body is, but it is a glorious thing. I was, I was challenged with it, confronted with it uh, when Mary first got pregnant, and I started learning about how God made her body to knit together another human being. And and the changes that, that, that she went through and how her body responded to the baby after the baby was born, I mean, it's like, my mind was blown by it. It seemed mystical to me. The human body is glorious, and the church is glorious like it. When it works together the way it should, it is a sight to behold. You know, a lot of times our church doesn't function the way it should, and, we're, and, and we feel the pain of it, and we're quick to point it out. Um, but we need to remember that God has a glorious vision for us when we mature as believers, when we function like we should. It is a powerful testimony to the power of God. And we need to remind ourselves of those glimpses of glory. Have you seen some of that recently at Green Tree? You need to call it out. I got to tell you, uh, being a pastor and working for a church, sometimes seeing how the sausage is made, (laughs) oh. But when you show up, something like Affordable Christmas, and see people coming in and being affirmed in their their humanity and their dignity and being prayed for, whoo. It's amazing. It's powerful. When you see God at work here at the church, point it out, because we need the encouragement. We need to be reminded of what we could be. That's what Martin Luther King does. He he has this great vision of what could be, the glory of justice realized, and and he praises what our country could be. This is what he writes. One day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and the most sacred values of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Even in these words of correction, he, he praises the hope of our nation, the hope that our nation was founded upon. And, and he felt sure that it would be realized one day. He was confident of it. He didn't speak about if we get there. He says, we will get there. You know, life is hard. Would you agree? And even when things aren't spinning out of control, you know, we get tired. maybe, Maybe you're even tired right now. We need encouragement. We need not just a rebuke for our failings. We need a picture painted with words spoken in love of what could be That inspires us. Can you imagine a church body made up of whites and blacks and Asians and people from the Middle East and India all working together to know know God and to make him known? That's the vision of our church. Imagine all those people coming together for that same purpose. You know what? And the seeds of that are here in our church right now. We're far from realizing it, but the seeds are there. Some of you might say, well, not in my lifetime. That's a long way off. Well, perhaps not. You won't see it in your lifetime. But the real question is, how far can we get down the tracks to that destination? How can we help flesh out that reality That not only God has destined us for, we know we're going there. If you look at Revelation chapter 7, the throne room of heaven, every nation, every tribe, we sang about it earlier, that is where we are going. And we have the seeds of it now. How far down that track can we get in our lifetime? God has worked the bonds of the Spirit in us. He wants us to flesh it out. How can we advance the cause? Well, it begins by not denigrating The vision, not denigrating that pipe dream because it's God's pipe dream. um, A lot of you know I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up near the coastline, almost inside of the Statue of Liberty, which, by the way, is not in New York. It's in New Jersey waters. I just want to make that clear. I, I was in high school when they went through the conservation and restoration project. That's what it looked like when I was a kid. And, uh, and, and then the scaffolding uh, rose up around it, um, an impressive structure in and of itself, but it was only meant to serve uh, a glory greater than itself. They were not creating a statue. They were bringing out the beauty already there, scraping away the grime, hammering the copper back into shape with the tools that they had. You know, pastors and evangelists, uh, teachers, shepherds, that's our calling, to bring out the beauty that is already in you. God has wrought it. It's covered over by gr- the grime of, of self-centeredness and, and, and fear and worry. And we as pastors are simply a scaffolding trying to bring out the beauty that's already there, to take our words and our deeds spoken in love To see the beauty of the church shine forth, shine out to the world as a taste of heaven. And that's why Martin Luther King called the church the colony of heaven. An enclave, a a kind of a a beachhead for the influence of heaven on this world. And the early church was too God-intoxicated to be worried about their chances of success. They had a glorious vision and a glorious destination. Paul wrote about that vision and that destination in this letter from a jail cell. And Martin Luther King wrote about that same vision, that same destiny from his jail cell. Now, Martin Luther King was not a perfect man, and this morning we're not, we're not trying to worship him any more than we worship King David when we quote his psalms or we're even worshiping Paul as we're reading his letter. But Martin Luther King exhorted us to honor the call of Scripture, to speak the truth in love, to build, to correct, to praise. And in this sense, Martin Luther King was not simply a champion for the black community, He was not simply a hero of the American nation. He was a champion for the gospel and for the church. So this weekend, as we remember Martin Luther King, I want you to think about what might be among us and how we might be a part of that colony of heaven speaking the truth in love. We're going to enter into a moment of a time of confession of sin. And I want you to be thinking during that time, the silent time of confession, Think on what might be. Think on perhaps how you have been a hindrance to that and how we, we all might repent and turn and actually be a part of that great vision and that great destination. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning and we do ask that your spirit would be at work in us to give us eyes to see, ears to hear your message, that we might be corrected. But more than that, Lord, might be inspired to walk as Jesus walked, to walk towards that destination of unity across racial lines, across social economic lines, across gender lines, and to do it for your glory.